Father, we need your word. We need your word to invade our souls and bring clarity. To penetrate our hearts and bring comfort. To infiltrate our minds and bring wisdom. You've started a good work in us. We need you to continue that good work today. There are voids in us that can only be filled by your blessed character. There are crooked thoughts in us that can only be straightened by your blessed correction. There are sinful motives and intentions in us that can only be cleansed by your blessed work on the cross. We need you to work on us. Bring out the chisel. And if necessary, the chainsaw. Mold us into the image of your dear son. Give us deeper affections for you. Give us higher reverence for you. Give us longer endurance for you. Sustain us by your word. Father, we're pulling a chair up to the table. We came to feast. Spread a banquet that will make our eyes pop and our hearts leap. Holy Spirit, if I labor in the flesh, this will be a disaster. I need to labor alongside you. Make the text personal, personal, personal. Make the gospel glorious, glorious, glorious. Make the blood precious, precious, precious. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We have been <laughs> swimming in the book of Revelation. Hopefully you've been swimming and not drowning. We started with an introduction where we pulled six guiding principles to help interpret the book. We've been putting those interpretive principles to work in each message. We then moved to a, a human portrait and a divine portrait. In the human portrait, we saw John in his 80s exiled to a, a penal settlement, first century Alcatraz. He was banished to Patmos for preaching the gospel. In fact, uh, Tertullian, who was born 50 years after John was on Alcatraz, said John was exiled after he was plunged in boiling oil. But there wasn't just a human portrait, there was a divine portrait in that text. We saw Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands. We were told clearly from the text that the lampstands were the seven local churches to whom John was to write this letter. He's walking around, trimming wicks and carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flame. He's making sure his candles don't go out. He keeps his churches burning. The majestic Christ walks among his scattered churches. Then we encountered the seven letters to the seven churches. These were real churches in real cities with real pastors and real members. We studied the heady church, the persecuted church, the compromising church, the tolerant church, the growing but dying church, the small church, and the lukewarm church. 
We were then elevated from earth to heaven and we beheld the glory of the throne of God. We witnessed the inestimable beauty and majesty of God the Father. On our next step along our apocalyptic journey led us to witness John weeping because God the Father held a scroll and none of the sinless angels could open it. They were not worthy. The first readers knew these scrolls well. They were common in their day. Osborne said they were over 32 feet long. This scroll contained God's plan for history, God's unfolding redemptive purposes. It was sealed with seven seals. With no one to open the scroll, sin has no end. The prospect of sin never coming to an end wrecked John. The drama builds until John was told to weep no longer. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll. In that next exposition, we saw the lamb with a slit throat slit each seal in a measured pace. The seven seals told the story of the end of the world and the beginning of God's kingdom. The seven trumpets tell the same story, but from another perspective. We are 14 messages in to a 22-week study. Today we have a colossal angel, a little scroll, two witnesses. There are many things in these chapters that are clear and a few things that are not clear. I want to acknowledge that from the outset. But this passage is not beyond your understanding. You can grasp this. You can go home with clarity on the main emphasis of the text and what your response should be to the text. As we go through and evaluate the colossal angel, the little scroll, and the two witnesses, I'm going to drip apocalyptic truths throughout. I have seven of them, which is fitting for the book. You guys know I, I don't always do it this way. Typically, I save all of that for the end because I, it tends to break up the text, but I'm switching the rhythms today. Let's look at, chap let's look at um, chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, <laughs> wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. John is watching this probably horrified. This is one scary angel. This angel wore a cloud for clothes, a rainbow for a hat, and his face shined brightly and brilliantly like the sun. His legs, pillars of fire. We know this angel was never born. God created him to reflect his own brilliance. This angel never aged. He forever existed in this form. Verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. The imagery in the Bible is that when you put your foot on something, you have authority over what's underneath. It's a universal formula. This powerful angel holds granted authority over the sea and the earth. But let's not look at his feet. Let's look at his hands. He's holding a little scroll. 
We have no record in the Greek language of anyone ever using the word little scroll, which is one word in the Greek. It seems that John invented this word, coined it. This is not the same scroll as the one before. Jesus holds that scroll, an angel holds this scroll. That scroll was huge. This scroll is little. It makes sense that John would comment on the size of the scroll, not only to differentiate it from the previous scroll, but also because he's going to be told later to eat it. So he wants you to know he's not eating a 32-foot-long scroll. The visual impact of this colossal angel stuns John. And then he hears this booming voice. Verse 3. He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. This colossal angel roars on behalf of God the Father on the throne. In the roar are seven thunders. These thunders this just didn't make a loud noise. They communicated information. These seven thunders revealed information about the end. We had seven seals, seven trumpets. Later we will have seven bowls. And here we have seven thunders. Thunders in the Bible are regularly bound up in judgments. These thunders are additional revelation. Additional information about what's going to happen. Whatever this information was, John was told he could not write it down. He was not to pass this information along to the seven churches and through the inspiration of God to all the churches after, including Faith Family Church. John had already dipped the quill in the inkwell and was about to write when the voice says, Stop! Don't write a word! The seven thunders are a whole stream of undisclosed events that will transpire. These sequences of judgment are so awful God will not disclose them. Beloved, we have not been given exhaustive revelation. There are things we don't know. There are things that will happen that revelation doesn't tell us. There are many events that God chooses not to reveal. The fact that we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. The revelation of God is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. In the scriptures, we don't have everything we would like to know, but we have everything we need to know. Can you live with that? Can you live with the fact that God has chosen to keep some things to himself? That there are secret things that belong to him alone? That leads us to our first apocalyptic truth, and it is this. God's plans are not fully known, yet he can be fully trusted. The purpose of this book is not to lay out a step-by-step -step guide on how it's all going to end. The purpose is to get you to trust in the one who will bring it all to an end. You say, Kyle, I mean, I, 
I got my seven seals on the chart. I got my seven trumpets on the chart. I got my seven bowls on the chart. I got them ordered perfectly. Oh, yeah? Where are the seven thunders? God, in his good wisdom, did not reveal the seven thunders. He left us with question marks. You will enter heaven holding some question marks. Not just about Revelation, but about how events unfolded in your life. And that's okay. That will happen by divine design. You don't have to have all your questions answered. That's part of God's plan for your spiritual growth. You need to trust the one who, in his divine wisdom, chooses to withhold the answers. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. This colossal angel took a vow. This isn't the only time this has happened. An angel took a vow in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. This angel adopts the posture of oath-taking. He raised his right hand to heaven and invokes God as witness. Abraham did this, as did Moses. This was common in antiquity. The colossal angel calls on the one who created the heaven and the earth and the sea, and then he repeats three times for emphasis, and what is in it. God is the uncaused call. God is the uncaused God. He's Aristotle's unmoved mover. The angel is completely aware of the self-existence of God. You may remember during the, the seven seals, if you could think back that far, the martyrs cried out, how long before you will avenge our murders? How long, how long? Here, what does the text say? There will be no more delay. God's great purposes in creation and redemption are unfolding right now. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And then John testifies here, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. <laughs> this voice is God the Father on the throne commanding John to walk up to the colossal angel. And I'm sure it, it looked like a little child. He looked like a little child compared to the size of this magnificent angel. Like Kevin Hart walking up to Shaquille O'Neal. Or Danny DeVito walking up to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or me walking up to... Well, let's be real. Your pastor's built like a gladiator. And he cowers before no man. <laughs> What's happening here? This is John's commissioning as a prophet of God. John's prophetic call mirrors Ezekiel's prophetic call in the Old Testament. It's a reenactment. And I'm going to give you for the first time in the Revelation series a chart. <laughs> but a biblical one. Let's look at this commissioning as prophet with Ezekiel and John, both saw a scroll in a hand. Both were commanded to eat the scroll. 
both were both after they were commanded put the scroll in their mouth and once they did for both it was sweet as honey and at the end both were told go and speak God's words notice uh, John 10 verse 11 John is speaking and he says I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings this was a pivotal moment in the ministry of Ezekiel, and it's a pivotal moment in the ministry of John. So many similarities, but there is one difference. And I want you to notice the one difference. Verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, everything has been consistent so far. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. That did not happen with Ezekiel. Sweet in the mouth, but when John swallowed, his stomach curdled. Now, let me tell you what's not happening here. This is not middle school where your teacher busts you writing a note and she tells you to bring the note to, to her desk. But instead, you stick it in your mouth and you eat it. That's not what's happening here. John didn't start to write the seven thunders and then God said, you better get rid of that. Eat it. Don't confuse the content of the thunders with the content of the little scroll. This little scroll is open to view. It has no seals on it. John is to eat this scroll and reenact what Ezekiel did. By the way, John knew this. He knew his Old Testament. He had preached from Ezekiel. He had preached this very text. You say, Kyle, what was in the little scroll? What did it say? Was it the Bible? Was it the gospel? Was it the book of Revelation? Was it the judgment of God? I think so. We, we don't know exactly, but whatever it was, it was the word of God. The scroll was in heaven and God wrote on it like he did with the big scroll. John is to eat this scroll and make the contents completely his own. Assimilating it into the tissue of his life. The prophet is taking in the message, ingesting it. The idea of consuming the word of God is found in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is a vivid picture. This, this doesn't mean you need to start eating pages of your Bible. It means you cut John and he bleeds this little scroll. It became a part of him. John tastes this scroll and it's surprisingly sweet. It kind of tastes like milk chocolate. Here's the thing about, about God's word. It can be sweet when it's ingested and bitter when it's digested. Hamilton, who I think wrote one of the top three commentaries on the book of Revelation, Hamilton says, the idea of John eating the scroll is that the prophet John is taking in the message and digesting it, then delivering it to the people. Bitter, not pleasant, cringeworthy is John's response as he contemplates judgment. He's mourning the bitter judgment coming on the ungodly. Preaching the gospel can be bitter work. 
Is it possible? Is it possible to preach the gospel without ever mentioning the judgment of God? John says no. It may be bitter, but it's necessary. It's sweet when it's received and bitter when it's rejected by others. Were some of the seven churches not going to receive this well? Maybe. It leads us to our second apocalyptic truth. God's judgment is hard to stomach. The sweet word of God sometimes leaves a bitter aftertaste because it's a scroll of judgment. What person loves telling people they're going to face the judgment of God? Ezekiel didn't. John didn't. But God's word should not be rejected or avoided just because it causes indigestion. And it at times is bitterly received by others. Sometimes the word of God becomes a great burden. It requires of us obedience that is difficult. By faith, we accept both honey and bitter, both sweet and sour, both pleasant and painful aspects of all that God's word demands. The judgment of God is a bitter pill to swallow. Or should I say? A bitter scroll to swallow. Now let's break into Revelation chapter 11. Some scholars say this is the hardest chapter in the book to interpret. (laughs) You may agree with them after I walk you through it. My goal is not to further complicate it for you, but to let you see that it's meat for a hungry soul and water for a parched spirit. It's not a cakewalk. Be aware. In my sermon writing on this chapter, I prayed. I prayed, Lord, you didn't allow me to get this far in the book just to let me die in chapter 11, did you? I have noticed that when preachers preach this text and commentators comment on this text, they spend most of their time refuting views that they do not hold instead of articulating what they do hold. I don't want to make that error. I'm going to have to enter that a bit, but I don't want to live there. Verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. John has taken the office of prophet, and the first thing he's handed is a tape measure. Wait, what? I thought I was going to be a prophet. Hand me a Bible, not a tape measure. These measuring rods were bamboo-like canes that grew in swampy areas. They grew to 12 to 20 feet in height. They had a plethora of uses, uses, including walking sticks, uh, whittled-down writing instruments. And, And as a whole, they were the ancient equivalent of a tape measure. When you're called to be a prophet, you don't expect to hold a tape measure. When I became a pastor, I didn't didn't think I'd be dealing with tape measures. But then during the building of this facility, I found myself holding a tape measure all the time. I didn't know how to read it, but I was holding it. John is no longer a passive spectator in this vision. He is actively involved now. So let's answer two questions. 
What is he measuring? Why is he measuring? First, what is he measuring? He's measuring a temple. There are 14 references to a temple in the book of Revelation. Now, some commentators believe this is a literal temple. Either the temple that was destroyed in AD 70 or a future temple that will be rebuilt in modern-day Jerusalem and the sacrifices reinstituted. Some of you may believe this. I'm inclined to believe this is a figurative way of describing the people of God. That's my thesis. Now let me defend it. What marks out the temple of God? The presence of God. That was the significance of the building. We find the church in the scripture referred to as God's temple. Ephesians 2, you are the temple of God. It's the spiritual temple. The Bible's theology of the temple is not so much a building, but a people. In fact, other things are called temple in the Bible. In Genesis, the garden is called a temple. Jesus himself called, called himself a temple that will be destroyed and resurrected in three days. They couldn't understand it. I don't think a physical temple is going to be resurrected in Jerusalem and God's presence will be there and sacrifices will be reinstituted there. I think the church, the people, is the only temple where God will ever indwell again. It's not unusual for apocalyptic genre to compress the vast historical epics into one symbol and I think that's what's happening here. I see the temple in Revelation not as a building but a people. What is he measuring, number one? Number two, why is he measuring? Obviously, this was not an effort to determine physical dimensions because what follows is not a list of linear measurements. He's measuring property lines. Now, you, you know, property lines are important if you're going to put a fence up or plant a tree. John is measuring the elect. He's measuring the sealed. Those who worship in it, his words. Th this is another way of referring to the church. The church is separated by being sealed. We found that out earlier. The church is separated now by being measured out by John. By measuring, John is marking some people out for destruction and some people for protection. Let me show you that, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. John is told, include some people in this measurement and do not include other people in this measurement. Separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the sealed from the non-sealed. Measure this area, but don't measure that area. That area doesn't get the same promise. Don't mark that off. Exclude it. Because that was given to non-believers. It's handed over for desec desecration. What is the holy city here? What is the holy city in Revelation? It's New Jerusalem. Revelation 21 tells us the holy city is the people of God. So my contention is that the temple and the holy city are the people of God. The, the nations will trample over the holy city. They will mistreat God's people. You say, wait a minute. That's me. Yes. Yes. How long will they do this? 42 months. Every other number in the book of Revelation is symbolic, and I see this one as symbolic as well. I take, this, 
I, I take this as the standard symbol for a limit, limited period of time. Uh, when Israel escaped Egyptian bondage and went into the wilderness, they set up 42 encampments. Elijah shut off the rain for 42 months. Everyone was familiar with this 42 months. When the original readers heard 42, they thought not of a length of time, but of a kind of time. Judgment. Persecution. Now, I'm going to really unpack all of this next week. And you might say, Kyle, I don't think you fully swayed me on the 42 months yet. Well, next week I will. It fits better in the flow to cover it then. Either way, all parties agree that this is divine assurance and that opposition will come. The bride of Christ is going to often feel like it's being trampled. They will be persecuted. The church will be persecuted. In that trampling, they are measured out and secure from apostasy and final wrath. Those measured will receive mercy in the end and those not measured will know no mercy. We see the paradoxical perspective of the church. It is both invincible and vulnerable. Invincible spiritually, vulnerable physically. We see the security of the church and the vulnerability of the church, which leads us to our third apocalyptic truth. Who told you it was going to be easy down here? Except the church's vulnerability. No one said it would be flowery beds of ease. You think somehow God owes you alleviation of suffering? Of trampling? John was just plunged in boiling oil for preaching the gospel. This trampling doesn't surprise him. In fact, he's already faced it. This vulnerability is nothing new. Nor is the invincibility. The spiritual protection through all the tribulations. John wrote to the churches, God will give you perseverance. He will make you last. This vision is another way of reinforcing all of that. And now notice we have a shift here in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse 3 introduces to us God's famous two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. I'll unpack this 1,260 days next week. Until then, these witnesses wear sackcloth. This is rough clothing worn during mourning. They are speaking on behalf of God and it's not a good message. It's a message of judgment, hence the rough clothing to match the rough message. The bitter appearance to match the bitter message. And there's hardly any agreement among conservative scholars on who these two witnesses are. Let me give you a little taste of the variety. <laughs> among the multiple theories are Elijah and Enoch. They say that's who the two witnesses are. They're the only two people who didn't die in the Old Testament. They were taken up to heaven. And so they say they're going to come back and live the rest of their life. Another view is the most common, Elijah and Moses. You say, why do they hold that? Because the two witnesses you will see later do Moses and Elijah-like things. 
the uh, third view is, is Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. There's a close parallel with this chapter in the book of Zechariah. Others, Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah and Elijah, James and John, Peter and Paul, Billy Graham and D.L. Moody. That, that last one's not legit. Some say the two witnesses are representatives of the Old and New Testament. Law and prophets, law and gospel, Israel and the church. And here's, here's an interesting one. It's wrong, but it's really interesting. Um, they, they say the two witnesses are the church at Smyrna and the church in Philly. They were the only two churches out of the seven that received no rebuke from the Lord. They were faithful witnesses. Found that interesting. I don't think you should pick out two individuals and assign them to these witnesses. I hold to the position that says the two witnesses are a metaphor for the church. They are symbols for the church. Well, Kyle, if it refers to the church, why does it say two witnesses instead of a cloud of witnesses? I mean, you would think if it was all of God's people, it would say a cloud of witnesses and not two witnesses. Well, let me give you my reason. First, God's law required two witnesses to substantiate anything significant. Everything in the Bible must be confirmed on the authority of two witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, uh, Matthew 18. We have two here because it's a legal ministry proving the guilt of the world. The second reason is in verse 4. The text says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The two witnesses are. Now you could put that, you could put an equal sign here. The two witnesses equal the two olive trees. The two witnesses equal the two lampstands. Now we know the lampstands represent the church. Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. That was chapter one. It, it, if you turned over to Zechariah chapter 4, you would find that Zechariah in his vision sees a lampstand and by it two olive trees. And the olive trees feed the oil needed to keep the lamps going. It was an unending supply. I'm in the line of scholars. I'm in a long line of scholars like Tom Schreiner that believe that the two witnesses, the two lampstands, and the two olive trees are representatives of the church. If you say the two witnesses are actual people, then you have to say that the two olive trees are actual people. I find the church symbolically portrayed to just be more convincing. Here's the point, church. Here's the point. God will not leave himself without a witness in this world. He will preserve the prophetic witness of the church. That's the point. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, you're going to like this. Uh, verse 5, if anyone would harm them, that's the two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power, the two witnesses, to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. John is, is picking up this biblical language of judgment to, to, to depict the judgment on non-believers. Elijah did one of these, Moses did another. Now, I know some of you are, are very excited about this. 
that the two witnesses get to breathe fire out of their mouth. The two witnesses are the church. I'm part of the church. I'm about to be a fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> Hold up. Wait a minute. Some of you do have dragon breath. But the fire-breathing part, no. Those that take a literal approach to this book think that the two people think that these two people will be able to reproduce the Egyptian plagues and shoot fire out of their mouths. I see the judgments as symbolic. Mm, well, Kyle, I don't, I don't know about that. That's a slippery slope. Before you know it, you will be interpreting Jonah symbolically, the miracles symbolically, the resurrection symbolically. Are any of those apocalyptic literature? No. I interpret Revelation 1-1 literally which tells us to interpret the rest of the book symbolically. Fire coming out of his mouth, it's not literal. Just like a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is not literal. It's a symbol of judgment. It's simply a matter of respecting the, the book's literary genre. We're not allegorizing the text. That's when the authority lies within your own hyperactive imagination. This is finding the symbols in Revelation and tracing them back to the Old Testament to find the original meaning. That's what we've been doing the entire book. Verse 7. And when they, the two witnesses, have finished their, notice this word, testimony. The beast that rises, where's the beast? That rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. It's not that this beast ascends from the bottomless pit for, for the first time. It's just saying this is where he comes from. Their, their testimony or witness, to use the language of a courtroom, is going to be contested, opposed. The beast, Satan, will kill them. Here's another reason why I'm inclined to think that these two witnesses are not individuals. Because Revelation 13, 7 mimics this verse. They were allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. It's the exact same language, not referring to two individuals there, but referring to the whole church as a whole. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, oh, wow, that's a, that's a, I can't believe that word's in the Bible. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. The word body here is actually singular. It's, it's translated plural for readability, bodies, but it's singular in the original, like they have the same body or are a part of the same body. To, to the ancients, you got to understand how they're receiving this. To the ancients, it was ultimate desecration to expose one's body after death. This is grossly humiliating. It's a morbid, ghoulish display. To, to, be, to be deprived of burial to an Eastern is, is an act of great indignity. It's a shame not to bury a corpse. Where are these bodies located? The city that is called Sodom in Egypt. Well, Sodom is a city, but Egypt is a country. So what's this about? Nation. So Sodom and Egypt were, were, were bywords that represented wickedness. The, the city and, and that nation epitomized opposition to God. The verse even continues... Now, now it gives a new one. Where the Lord was crucified. Well, the Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. Where are these bodies? We have three different places now. Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem. 
The phrase great city here, every other place in Revelation refers to Rome. So now we have four places. Where are these dead bodies? This great city is not a city. Yet it's every city. There's a contrast here with the city of God and the city of man. It's the tale of two cities. These two witnesses are the church and they are not literally lying dead in the street in a particular geographical location. It's hyperbole to represent that the church will seem defeated in its role of witness. They will be temporarily silenced. Which leads us to our fourth apocalyptic truth. There will be times when the church appears dead. The wicked will say, finally, we got rid of the church. It's happening in some countries now. They think it's gone. The prophetic witness of the church seems dead. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, where these seven churches were originally located, Turkey. As the global oppression of the church spreads and intensifies in certain places, it will seem the church's voice is silenced and its presence barely noticeable. Verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages, see we're used to hearing this about redemption, but notice the opposite. Some from peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The whole world says, good riddance. Let's dance. Let's declare a holiday. There's rejoicing that the church is dead. We eliminated those quacks. Now, I've heard some pastors say, who hold a different view of Revelation than I, I've heard them say, how will the whole world see these two literal people, their dead bodies? Well, no one knew until TV was invented. Now we know the news organizations on the planet, all of them will post images of this scene and it will be transmitted from Jerusalem to Tokyo, I'm reading a quote here, to New York, to London, Moscow, Beijing, South Africa, Paris, and to the whole world. I don't think that's a proper conclusion from the genre of scripture. Super creative though. I think this is a proper conclusion. It's the fifth apocalyptic truth. Are you prepared to be a faithful witness? Are you prepared to be a faithful witness? Revelation 11 is the great commission in apocalyptic literature. It's the apocalyptic great commission. Are you prepared to go no matter what it costs you? Are you prepared to give the good news even if it's not received well? Even if it's a bit bitter? Two things always go together. The church witnesses, the world persecutes. The church witnesses, the world persecutes. The church witnesses, the world persecutes. Are you going to be a gospelizer? or a compromiser. Do you remember the martyrs that were under the altar in Revelation 6? You know why they were martyred? Because of their testimony, the text says. The testimony they gave. The same language here as in verse 7. 
The world is not going to get friendlier to the witness of Christ. You will not likely be received well. You will be rejected. You will not always have a crowd backing you up. You have to learn as part of your discipleship. You have to learn to be willing to be in the minority. Because you're backed up by heaven. Jesus has commissioned you to witness for him. About him. To be those two witnesses. To be the church. You say, Kyle, if I lived in a persecuted country, man, I'd give the gospel. Do you even give the gospel when you're living in a soft, cushy country? People are not always going to like you. Come to terms with someone will always dislike you. Making known the gospel will involve loss. Let me just give you something really, your front porch. If your presentation of the gospel never contains anything that offends people, you're not presenting the true gospel. Now, I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm certainly not saying have a sadistic delight in knowing that people will go to hell. John didn't have that. It made him sick to his stomach. It was bitter for him, hard, painful. But you must always be suspect when the world has no problem with the gospel you preach. Do you have, do you have energy witnessing? Are you an energetic witness? Now, I, I am not talking about an energy that crosses over into manipulation. The long, drawn-out altar calls. The well-coached counselors going forward at a preceding time. The turn or burn scare tactics of the old chick tracks or thief in the night movie. I'm talking about the urgency we see on the pages of the New Testament. It is not the job of your pastors to create a program where you can witness to people. You already have your mission field. Your family, your work colleagues, your subdivision. How energetic are you at reaching those three spheres? Now let's back it up for a moment and I want to give you an aerial view of, of what's happening. We know the two dead bodies represent the church. The church looks dead. The world is celebrating. How long will they celebrate? Verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. John sees these events as so certain that he writes them in past tense. What's happening here? Is this a resurrection? Is this a rapture? If it is, it's certainly no secret rapture. The whole non-believing world watches. It's visible to all. Here's what I think it's pointing to. There will be a mighty work of God. This witnessing community will rise from the ashes and prove the church isn't dead. God will vindicate his witnesses and overturn the world's verdict about the church. 
Why allow his church to go through all this tribulation? So he can vindicate her publicly in the sight of all her enemies. The sixth apocalyptic truth is this. There will be times when the church appears dead. But the church will not be dead. The wicked will say, finally, we got rid of the church. But it's only for three and a half days. Or, to use the previous vision, in verses 1 and 2, how long will they be trampled? 42 months. A short period of time. There's a limited time the church will be defamed. Were you aware that Revelation is a favorite book of Christians in persecuted countries? Why is that? Is it because of a crazy eschatological chart changed their lives? No. It's the book of Revelation to to persecuted Christians is is a needle in their veins that pumps them full of holy, holy courage. When they are whipped and hung and set on fire and raped and cast out of villages, they know God will vindicate them. After this vindication, look what happens. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And this is interesting. Previously, he's spoken in proportions, one-fourth or one-third. Now he speaks with a fixed number, 7,000. Seven represents the number of perfection in Revelation. It's used over and over again. God will kill 7,000 people, meaning in every act of his judgment, he meets it out perfectly. 7,000 non-Christians were killed. What happened to the rest? They were terrified and gave glory to God. Some use this text to teach universal salvation. Everybody in the end is going to give glory to God. That's not what it's teaching. Those of you that are non-Christians, I don't, I don't, you may have noticed, some of you have been here for, for quite a while, I don't speak about you, I always try to speak to you. So I want to speak to you non-Christians now. Not everyone will be saved. You need to know this. If you do not repent and believe on Jesus as Savior, you will face the final wrath of God. And you will deserve every minute of it for refusing to honor him as Lord. He did not force sin on you. You chose it. Dear friend, run to Christ for salvation like you've never ran toward anything else in your life. These non-believers, the text says they do give glory to God, but it's begrudging admittance. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 gave glory to God, but wasn't converted in in Daniel chapter 4. The magicians of Egypt professed that the plagues happened by the the finger of God, but they still refused to repent. I think this is forced homage. I can't be dogmatic about that, but that's, that's where I land. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Now, you may remember when we covered the seven seals, that we covered the first six, and before we reached the seventh, there was an interlude. We have the same interlude here before we reach the seventh trumpet. We've covered, we, we've covered the six trumpets in chapter 10 and 11 are the interlude. The title of my sermon last Sunday was Seven Trumpets, but it was false advertisement. I only covered six. This, verse 15, is the seventh. History has reached its conclusion. A crescendo of voices begin to sing out. Greek grammarians call this proleptic heiress, which describes a future event but speaks of it like it's already taken place. History is over. The kingdom is being consummated now. He has begun to reign. Verses 17 and 18 are a song that heaven is singing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, you remember this phrase, don't you? At the beginning of verse 17, you remember this phrase. It was in chapter 4. All heaven sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They are singing the same song here, except they left one designation out. He who was, who is, and who is to come, they omitted the reference who is to come because he has come and set up his kingdom. The final kingdom has arrived. The song continues in verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the whole sweep, the whole sweep of history. Psalm 2 finds its eschatological fulfillment. The nations raged, a king came and broke them with a rod of iron. The wicked get his wrath. The righteous get his reward. The angry nations now get a taste of his anger. Which leads us to our seventh and final apocalyptic truth. The unfolding plan of God seems slow to us. But he will bring it to completion. Let this text instill you with confidence that God holds the reins of the world. He has intentions for it. There is no rogue nation that can deter his intentions. No insane dictator, no terrorist organization, no corrupt government officials, no sleazy senators, no nuclear threat, no pandemic can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. Even if Russia takes over Ukraine, even if terrorists strike our nation again, or democracy comes to an end in our country, God's purposes will still come to pass. God is Lord of history and his will is going to be done. Martin Luther had a wife named Katie. Katie called him doctor. You hear that? She called her husband doctor. I, t 
I shared that with Sarah at the dinner table. I said, Sarah, Katie Luther called her husband doctor. Sarah poured my glass of sweet tea on my head. (laughs) That didn't happen. But Martin Luther faced these deep bouts of depression. And some would last for days. On one occasion, his wife Katie dressed in all black. Martin Luther noticed and he asked her, Who died? She replied, God did. That's what I gathered from how you've been speaking. People could gather that from how some of you have been speaking. Church, stop allowing people to feed you doom and then speak like God isn't in control of the nation's raging. If you continue speaking like all hope is lost because something happened politically, please, beloved, don't ever tell people you're from our church. Because we know God has the nations in his hands and we're not fretting like you are. Revelation 11 swaddles you like a little baby. Rest well, dear one. He's sovereign. There's no way, there is no way you can be anxiety ridden when you see God swaddling you. Children, you children should thank God you grow up in a home where the Bible is taught. Because many of us didn't have the privilege that you have. And you not only get it on Sundays, but you get it on all the other days as well. Well, church, this chapter ends with one of the four storm theophanies in the book. It's wonderful. I don't have time to cover it. We're going to end in prayer. Let's stand. Father, the nations rage, but we we remain calm. We can't be blown by temporary winds. Our anchor runs deep into your sovereignty. Holy One, help us to be faithful witnesses, no matter the cost.